1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of God. Let us hear it. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father, and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and in Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Amen. We'll end our reading at the end of the chapter. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. That's in chapter 1 and verse 2. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. That's in chapter 2 and verse 13. For what thanks can we render to God again for you, for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God? That's in chapter 3 and verse 9. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. That's in chapter 5 and verse 18. So basically in every chapter with the exception of chapter 4, you find mention here or a Pauline example of giving thanks. It seems that no matter what problems the Apostle Paul faced with his converts, no matter what challenges they faced or what challenges Paul faced with them, he never lost sight of the wonder of so great salvation that had been wrought for them by Christ and was wrought upon them by the Holy Spirit. And so he has caused time and again throughout this epistle to give thanks to God and to call upon the churches to give thanks to God also. And this is a very consistent pattern that you find with Paul in pretty much all of his epistles. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. That's in Romans chapter 1 and verse 8. First, 
as a matter of priority, before I go any further, before we deal with any doctrine or any practical issues, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. And then what about the Corinthian church? If you know anything about that church, you know that you could label it as the problem church, the church that had problems of strife and division and abusing spiritual gifts and just misconduct between the brethren. And Paul has to sort out all of that and apply the gospel to all of that. And yet listen to what he says in the opening words of that epistle in verse 4 of chapter 1. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ. Um, Again, thanking God for the grace that he perceived in them. What an outlook, by the way, that Paul had on those saints in Corinth. It would be easy, I suppose, for some to look upon the members of that church and wonder if it was even a church at all. With all the strife, with all the division, with all the issues, and yet Paul could still recognize, yeah, it's a church with problems, but it's a church where grace has been manifested and salvation has been wrought, and I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God given you by Jesus Christ. I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, Ephesians 1 and verse 6. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. That's in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 3. So you begin to see what I mean when I say uh, that Paul was in the habit of giving thanks for those to whom he ministered. One of the charges that Paul would level against a world of rebellious unbelievers would be that even though they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. And in that same verse, Romans 1 verse 23, Paul goes on to explain that something terrible takes place in the hearts of those who fail to give thanks to God. He says that they become vain in their imaginations and their foolish hearts are darkened. Kind of makes it a matter of vital interest and importance, doesn't it? That if you don't find yourself filled with thanksgiving, a thankful heart toward God, Oh, you ought to be concerned. You ought to be concerned that your imaginations have become vain and your foolish heart is darkened. And it is foolishness, by the way, to be anything less than grateful to God. Now, in this first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, Paul remembers things about the believers that lead him to give thanks We give thanks to God, he says in verse 2, remembering, he says in verse 3. In other words, there were memories that led to thanksgiving. Giving thanks and remembering can go hand in hand. And it's no different today. There are things that we do well to remember that can and should lead us to thanksgiving And this is what I want to focus on today. Memories that lead to thanksgiving. 
If I could put it to you simply and directly, we should remember the things that lead to thanksgiving. We should remember the things that lead to thanksgiving. And that shouldn't be a difficult chore, by the way. What things do we remember? Well, in this first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, there are three things. I'm only going to deal with two of them today that Paul remembered about the Thessalonians. These are things that we ought to be able to remember in our own Christian experience. And these are the things that should lead us to thanksgiving as well as challenge us to renew our dedication to the Lord. So first of all, you should remember your conversion. Remember your conversion or your salvation. Look at verse 9. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. I think it would be correct to say that most of this chapter is devoted to Paul's memory of the conversion of the Thessalonians. This ninth verse stands out as a very plain and powerful example of what happens when a man is converted to Christ. The text says that the believers in Thessalonica turned, okay? They turned from something, and they turned toward something. They turned away from idols, and they turned toward God or Christ. And what you have in this verse is a perfect example of how faith and repentance work together in a sinner's conversion. Repentance speaks of turning away from something. A sinner faces the truth of his sin. He confesses his sin to God. He pleads the blood of Christ over his sin. He's grieved and sorry for his sin and is determined by God's grace to leave his sin. So he turns away from something. He turns away from sin and he turns toward Christ. He has faith in Christ. So the repentance aspect of salvation is the turning away element, if you will. The faith aspect of conversion is the turning toward something, if you will. He believes in the atoning work of Christ, and he's happy to commit the well-being of his soul to Christ. He takes hold of Christ by faith, and his hope for eternal life in heaven is based solely on what Christ has done in his atoning death. And do you see how they both work together? You have repentance, and you have faith. It strikes me as strange in our day, that that's actually, in some circles, a matter of controversy. You can find some churches and some preachers that try to give you the impression that you can have faith without repentance. So the idea goes. Or in other words, you can turn to Christ as your Savior without turning away from your sin. My, it's no wonder that the church is in such a sorry condition if that's a prevalent view. Like the Thessalonians, 
True conversion has you turning away from idols and not just statues of false gods, but turning away from the false notions of your imagination that say that you're all right, that say that sin isn't a serious matter, or that say that your goodness outweighs your sin. Those are the notions you turn away from, and you do so by turning toward Jesus Christ. Now, the Thessalonians were wonderfully and powerfully converted, and this gave Paul cause for thanksgiving. You see how he puts it in verse 5, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. This is the same kind of thing you find in Romans. You remember Paul's thesis statement to the Romans? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Paul at that time had never been to Rome, but he knew that they had experienced the power of the gospel, and he wanted to go to them to preach the gospel to them so that they might continue to know that power. We see the same thing in his epistle now to the Thessalonians, but now he is remembering how that power was manifested toward them. He saw that power manifested in their lives. He saw them enter not merely into a new and different religion, but he saw them become alive to the living and true God, verse 9. And I love that expression I love that statement as it pertains to God, the living and true God. It indicates to us that in salvation, we have not merely canceled our subscription to a false religion in order to take up a subscription to another religion, but we have experienced a new relationship to God, the living and true God, through Jesus Christ. We know him to be the true and living God because we've been wrought upon by the truth and we've been made alive toward him. Here's the question then that each one should face this afternoon. How has the gospel come to you? Have you heard it in word only? Sadly, that is the way that many hear it. Or has it come to you in power? Has it come to you through the Holy Spirit? If it has, then you will have gained that heartfelt perception that the gospel is true and that Christ is real. What it says about your sin is true, that your sin is offensive to God and deserves everlasting condemnation. What it says about Christ is true, that he is the Son of God, who came and who died for your sins. What it says about life is true, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. When the gospel comes with power and the Holy Spirit bears witness to your heart, to the truth of it, then it comes with assurance. Okay, as Paul says in verse 5. And when it comes this way, you are sure of it. And it brings to your soul great joy. You see what Paul says in verse 6? You became followers of us and of the Lord, 
having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. That's really a graphic description of gospel power, isn't it? They received the word in much affliction. You might say that the word stirred their hearts to an internal affliction when they came under conviction of sin, and that word definitely led to external affliction when the Thessalonians were persecuted for their faith, as they were. And yet in the midst of much affliction, it was not affliction that ruled their hearts. It was the joy of the Holy Ghost that ruled their hearts. And so is this the case when the gospel goes forth with power. I wonder today, do you remember your conversion? Weren't those dark days before you closed in with Christ? You had a love for the sin that defiled and would damn you? You had a void in your heart that no amount of sin's pleasure could satisfy. You were weighed down by guilt. You were driven by lust. You were motivated by pride. In your darkness, you didn't know how you got here, what you're doing here, or where you're going from here. But God commanded the light to shine in the darkness of your heart. That's the power of the gospel. Okay, It wasn't a lightning bolt across the sky. It wasn't a clap of thunder ringing in your ears. It wasn't the shaking of the earth. It was really very simple. The gospel made sense to you. You could see your sin, and you could see that Christ died for your sin, and you came to him, and you believed in him, and you do believe in him now. I mean to tell you this afternoon, folks, that's powerful. That's the gospel coming with the witness of the Holy Spirit with assurance to your heart. And it gives you great cause for thanksgiving this very day. Have you closed in with him? The evidence for closing in with him, according to verse 6, is that you became a follower of Christ. You continue to follow him. You continue to seek him. Is that your testimony? If it is, then you have cause for thanksgiving. Remember your conversion then and give thanks to Christ for his marvelous salvation. So the first thing we remember and give thanks for is our conversion Consider with me next, and secondly, and finally, you should remember the impact of discerning your election. Remember the impact of discerning your election. Look at verse 4. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. This truth, perhaps more than any other, is what should convince you that your salvation is a miracle. Now in this chapter, Paul doesn't go to any length at all to expound election. He simply mentions it as something he knew about the Thessalonian believers and something that they knew about themselves. Hence the phrase, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. 
It was something they knew, something they were supposed to know. It wasn't a matter of controversy. It wasn't as if, uh, and I know that I'm being, um, well, I don't know what the term is, but I'm distorting history here to say that Paul was not merely trying to win an argument and turn them from Arminians into Calvinists, if you know what I mean. It wasn't a matter of controversy. This wasn't something that Paul had to take the time to explain and debate and convince them about. It was rather something so basic to the gospel that Paul mentions it as something that they would know. And when this doctrine is rightly understood, it becomes a real bulwark of assurance to the Christian. I tried to make that a point of emphasis in my theology class when we were in the section that dealt with the decrees of God. And of course, when you're dealing with the decree of God, you're dealing with Calvinism or Augustinianism versus Arminianism and what have you. And I tried to impress upon the students that if you're treating this doctrine right, you're not going to simply win an argument with an opponent who may not have seen the light of the truth at this stage of his Christian walk. But if you're using this doctrine correctly, ministering it properly, it should become a tremendous source of assurance to the believer. That's the impact of the doctrine of election. It becomes a source of assurance. You may recall that when you first discovered or were confronted with the doctrine of election, and this was certainly the case in my experience, the immediate impact it has on you is to create doubts about your salvation. After all, this is the doctrine that teaches you that salvation is entirely of the Lord. In his sovereign decree, God elected a people, gave a people to Christ. In the covenant of redemption, those people became Christ's upon condition that he would act as their covenant head and fulfill the law for them that they failed to fulfill and then pay the penalty for their many violations of that law by his atoning death. This is the doctrine that teaches you that there is more to salvation than a mere decision that someone may make for Christ. And when a believer is initially confronted with the doctrine that his salvation is entirely dependent upon the sovereign pleasure and grace of God, he may feel a certain amount of helplessness and humility and that's not a bad thing to feel that way. An important consideration when it comes to weighing your salvation is not whether or not you have chosen God, but whether or not he has chosen you. Boy, when you put it that way, it can become somewhat unnerving initially but once a true believer gets beyond that initial reaction to the humbling doctrine of election, then, as I say, the doctrine can become 
a wonderful source of assurance of salvation. It becomes a matter of the believer's greatest concern as well as his duty to heed the exhortation that Peter gives in his second epistle, chapter 1, verse 10, where he writes, Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Give diligence to know that you're elect, in other words, and that that call has been effectual in your life. And the way we make our calling and election sure, and the way it becomes a source of assurance, is by simply exploring the issue raised in our text back in 1 Thessalonians 1 as to how Paul knew that these Thessalonian believers were among the elect of God. How did he know that? Or more to the point, how can you know, how can I know, whether or not we're among the elect? Was it through some supernatural influence that Paul was able to perceive their standing with God? And the answer is no, not at all. If you look at the previous verse, verse 3, where we have the specific items mentioned that Paul remembers without ceasing, these things constitute the evidence of the election of the Thessalonian believers. And what does Paul specifically remember? We'll look at them. They're given to us in verse 3, remembering without ceasing, first of all, your work of faith. Their work of faith. And the phrase work of faith is so concise and yet somewhat comprehensive. Faith and belief are one and the same thing. In fact, they're oftentimes translated by the same Greek word in the New Testament. Paul knew that the Thessalonians believed in God and believed in Christ Look at what they believed in in the last verse of the chapter, verse 10. They believed that Christ was the Son, the Son of God from heaven. They believed that he was risen from the dead. They believed that Jesus was that Son raised from the dead. And they believed that through Christ they were delivered from the wrath to come. They believed the truth of Christ. This suggests that they believed in judgment. They believed that sin calls for the righteous anger of God's wrath. But through Christ's shed blood, they were delivered from that wrath. In other words, they believed the gospel. They had faith in the gospel. This was their work of faith that Paul remembered. But this faith was not merely an assent to these glorious gospel truths. Paul also remembered their work of faith. Their faith led to something. It led to a conscious effort on their part to live for Christ. That's the mark of a work of faith, ongoing work of faith. I live for Christ. This point is made even stronger in the next phrase where Paul says he remembers their labor of love. That's the essence, you know, of practical Christianity. Labor of love. We labor because we love Christ. 
I hope you're in church today because you love Christ. I hope that whatever you do, you do so with an aim to the glory of Christ because you love Christ. This is our glorious freedom in the gospel. We don't strive to earn something from Christ. We could never earn anything from Christ. Our best efforts fall short of the glory of Christ, and we could never earn our way to heaven or into an acceptable standing with God. But what we could never earn, God has freely given in Christ. He gives us Christ's righteousness. He gives us uh, forgiveness of sins full and free. He gives us eternal life. He gives us a home in heaven. And those who see their need for these things and perceive that apart from these things, their best efforts will not avail to gain them acceptance with God. And so they freely receive what God offers in the gospel. These folks, I say, are driven in life by an altogether different force or motivation than those who know not Christ and have not accepted the gospel. Their labors for God, that is the true Christian, his labors for God become labors of love. They're driven by love to Christ. They're driven by gratitude. There's our thanksgiving word again. Gratitude to Christ for all that Christ has freely given them. I know I've shared this with you, but I'll mention it again. That when the Lord saved my soul, I gained something that previous to my salvation I didn't have. And that was a work ethic. Before my attitude was, I want as much money as I can have for as little work as I can put into it. Who wants to work? Who likes work? But we all love money, right? And we all need money. Well, that was my mindset. I want as much money as I can gain for as little effort as I can put into it. I know I told you about the time I worked in a rubber plant up in La Crosse, Wisconsin. It was a union plant. I was a member of a labor union. Bunch of dumb kids, that's all we were. Teenagers, most of us. And our thinking was, What's the point of being in a labor union if you can't go on strike? So we did. <laughs> and um, really not for any issue that was really of any concern to any of us. Just seemed like a fun thing to do. Let's go on strike. So we did. And uh, we wanted, I, I don't even know what the issues were that we were negotiating for, but I'm pretty sure it had something to do with more money for less work. Okay. I wonder if that's what the auto workers are <laughs> jockeying for when I hear of them being on strike these days. Well, you see, when the Lord saved me, that outlook changed. Now, all of a sudden, my vocation, my work, was something that I was doing now for the Lord. I'm not doing this to make more money, though if I make more money, I'm not going to turn it down, obviously. I'm not doing this in order to 
make my boss rich or the owner of the company rich. No, I'm doing this because my Savior tells me that whatever I do, I'm to do it for his glory. So I'm aiming to glorify my, my Savior. That's the driving force. And that's what I mean, folks, by labor of love. I'll do this, I will. Show up to work on time. I'll do my best while I'm at work. I'll stay over if they need me to uh, because I'm working for my Savior at the end of the day. This is labor that I engage in in order to glorify Him. That's a mark then of one who has been chosen of God. Work of faith labor of love. There is yet another one, verse 3, which is patience of hope. Okay? You see it, verse 3, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. The word patience could also be translated by the word endurance. The believer's hope endures. His faith in Christ perseveres through all the circumstances of life. The believers in Thessalonica were put to the test. There was a price to be paid for identifying with Christ. If you have the chance, read Acts chapter 17, which describes Paul's entrance into Thessalonica. The believers there faced great opposition from the unbelieving Jews. Paul was forced to leave the city prematurely because of that persecution. One of the things that gives a certain amount of drama to this epistle to the Thessalonians is what Paul records in the beginning of chapter 3. Look at what it says, chapter 3, verse 1. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith that no man should be moved by these afflictions. So you have to keep in mind the backdrop, the setting for those words. Acts 17, Paul was driven out of Thessalonica. He's wondering how the saints there are doing since he had to leave them prematurely. And then look at verse 5, a little further down. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you and our labor be in vain. The suspense of the issue became so intense in Paul's mind and Paul's heart that he absolutely could not stand it. Okay, so he sent to know their faith. He wanted to know whether or not their faith would hold in the midst of great affliction, and the suspense weighed uh, on his heart until he at last had to send Timothy back to them to find out and in verse 6, we discover that Timothy returned to Paul and brought him news of the believers at Thessalonica. But now when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that ye have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us as we also to see you, 
Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. Oh, you can just sense the emotion in those words if you keep the setting in mind. What dramatic suspense. Was their faith shattered? Did it prove to be vain? Did the affliction that drove Paul out of Thessalonica cause them to renounce their uh, interest in Christ? And when word comes back, no, they're standing fast, they're still cleaving to Christ, then it's as if Paul could heave a big sigh of relief and say, for now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. It's as if Paul was saying, the thing was killing me. And now I know, and now I'm relieved, and now I'm thankful, you could say. You can feel his relief and exhilaration. It's no wonder he could write back in chapter 1, verse 3, that he remembered their patience or their endurance of hope. We sure don't expect much in our generation, do we? It seems that in our day, if a person makes even the slightest profession of faith, we become willing to excuse the fact that the gospel really hasn't had much of an impact upon his life. Paul's ministry to these believers was cut short, but still their lives were impacted by the gospel. That is the power of the gospel, and so by that Paul had confidence that they were among the elect because they believed in Christ, because they labored for the name of Christ, and because their hope endured. They never let go of Christ. And this is how you can know whether or not you are among the elect. Do you believe in Christ? Has your life been impacted by the gospel of Christ? Is your life lived in gratitude to Christ for so great salvation? And do you continue to hold fast your profession of faith in Christ, no matter what the circumstances of life bring your way? Oh, if you can affirm those things, you have cause for thanksgiving. And as we enter into a season of thanksgiving, you do well to thank God for your conversion. Thank God for your election. Thank God for the love of Christ and the glorious truth that you've gained an interest in that love by coming to him. And if you haven't come to him, I hope that you will. And if you will, and if you do, I promise you, um, you'll have cause for thanksgiving as well. Oh, may God then impress his word on our hearts and help each one to examine his heart and to help true believers in Christ to recognize how much they do indeed have to be thankful for. Let's close then in prayer. Let's all pray. Oh Lord, as we bow in thy presence and bring this meeting to a close, we thank thee for how much we do have to be thankful for. We know, Lord, that salvation is by grace through faith. 
It's not something we deserve. It's not something we could earn. If we had what we deserved or what we earned, we'd be burning in hell even now. But we thank thee, Lord, that instead of condemning us, you sent your son to die for us. Oh, Lord, we do pray that as we enter into this season of thanksgiving, that we may indeed take stock of our blessings and be found to be a thankful people before thy throne of grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.